all those things that you depend on in your daily lives to get power to your house, gas to your car, water, sewer, all those things that you depend on at your residence or your place of work are part of the critical infrastructure that supports everything we do. From a national level, though, it's all of those things that are essential functions that support national security or economic security or vitality or the public good. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the HIP Podcast. Critical infrastructure organizations and agencies, such as healthcare, state and local government, and energy, are usually at the top of the most attacked list year after year. The Colonial Pipeline attack brought critical infrastructure vulnerabilities to the national and international news, even though healthcare critical infrastructure has been attacked relentlessly without perhaps as much publicity. If you've read Wired Magazine articles and books by Andy Greenberg, you know how a targeted cyber attack can destroy a multi-million dollar generator in minutes. So where are we in critical infrastructure and securing critical infrastructure now? Are we making progress? Where do we stand today? My guest is Jerry Cochran, Deputy CISO for the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory and an advisory council member for the Cloud Security Alliance. He has a long history in cybersecurity from many angles, including 15 years at Microsoft in security engineering, Office 365 security operations, and cybersecurity consulting, and another 11 years as principal consultant, senior member of technical staff at Compaq. He spent 27 years in the Air Force doing cyberspace operations. Incidentally, uh, Jerry and I were also both contributors to Windows IT Pro magazine back in the day. Welcome to the HIP Podcast, Jerry. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. So help us help us understand. Let's start from the basics and let's talk about or define what exactly critical infrastructure is. It's easy to sort of make a hand-waving, oh, I know what critical infrastructure is, but it's actually quite a clear definition, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, from a from a national security or homeland security perspective, there are very clear definitions that the government has. I mean, I, I think as a as a as a layperson or just a citizen in a country, it's it's all those things that you depend on in your daily lives to get power to your house, gas to your car, water, sewer, all those things that you depend on at your residence or at your place of work are part of the critical infrastructure that supports everything we do. From a national level, though, it's all of those things that are essential functions that support national security or economic security or vitality or the public good. There's a, there's a wide range of things that classify as critical infrastructure. In fact, in the U.S., I think we're up to 17 critical infrastructure sectors that we have. And there are specific departments or agencies in the U.S. government that have responsibility for these individual sectors. So, uh, you know, agencies like the Department of Energy responsible for the energy sector or the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, that's responsible for, say, the telecom or the IT sector. So there's a large number of these sectors that are typically broken up by kind of how those the ownership or the regulatory environment or other things. So 
Um, that's kind of my best definition, though, is just the, the things we depend on as citizens, but for government, they're things that are of national, economic, and public importance. Right. Okay. So, and by that definition, it's actually quite a broad cross-section of industries with widely divergent needs and requirements. So having said that, I'm going to ask you to lump together um, why you think critical infrastructure is typically more vulnerable than other sectors are. The 17 critical infrastructures that the U.S. government looks at you know, they all have different elements of viability or vulnerability that, you know, kind of, you know, you think about something like the energy sector or the telecom or IT sector, uh, or maybe manufacturing or maybe the financial sector, those ones come to mind that, oh, yeah, there's a huge vulnerability from a cybersecurity perspective, or in, in some cases, even, you know, natural or man-made kind of threats. Other sectors, you think of like that, for example, there's a there's a monuments and building sector, and you don't even always think about, well, what, are the, what is the role that something like cybersecurity play in that? I would say that cybersecurity, depending on how connected that infrastructure is, and so if you think of something like the energy sector or the telecom sector or IT sector, they're highly connected. You think of something like buildings and monuments, and maybe not so much, but um, everything has an element of cybersecurity. And so if you think about the, the connectiveness of things and the nature and connectedness of things in our today's world, is that attack surface? The, the, that, that, the exposure of those connected surfaces just makes everything vulnerable uh, to from a cybersecurity perspective. And then, of course, everything has varying degrees of, of vulnerability from natural and you know man-made kind of other threats such as weather or wildfire or whatever. I'm sure I love the the way to categorize these various critical infrastructures by attack surface because different. I mean, there there are differences and there are similarities in attack surfaces across these critical infrastructure organizations and agencies. So I think of healthcare as having a large number of Internet of Things that are relatively dumb and poor security and then I think of the energy sector or other sectors like that that have a large number of very large process control devices that are that are electronically or cyber controlled. There, there are similarities uh, when you put those, and the the vulnerabilities are similar in, in those type of comparisons. So if you think about the energy sector, it's dependent upon well, natural gas. It's dependent upon. Uh, the water sector, believe it or not, it's you know, and it's dependent on the IT and telecommunications sectors. And so there's all these cross interdependencies of sectors that we can never think about a critical infrastructure in isolation. We also have to think about it that the energy sector may not have a vulnerability in its attack surface, but a, a sector that it's critically dependent upon might have a vulnerability in its attack service that ends up being a problem for another infrastructure. I find myself, and this is a question I'm, I'm just curious about, and I imagine our, our listeners are curious about this as well, in terms of segmentation in critical infrastructure. So let's talk about energy. You know, Simon Hodgkinson, who is the former uh, CISO for BP, would talk about operational resilience and the separation of operation networks or process control networks from IT or office networks. How is that done today? Back in the day when you know we weren't nearly as integrated as we were, I imagine 
that uh, you know you had an office network and then it was completely air gapped, different building network, you know, for process control or for op the what, and maybe I should back up and why don't you help us uh, define what an operational network is or a process control network is as opposed to the t- sort of network that your typical IT pro thinks about. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, we traditionally think of IT environments as the ones that support businesses and applications and the things that we're doing for productivity as workers. Well, you know, industrial control or operations technology networks or whatever you want to call them, um, they they are special purpose networks designed and built separately um, to, uh, the, the thing that's unique about them is that some element, they, they have huge components that in the cyber domain, right? They are IT systems at their core, but the difference is, is they, the other side of those systems, the, you know, the other face of those systems is they're talking to and interacting and influencing, impacting and sensing the environment. So there's something about the environment they're doing. They, they may be turning in a valve or they may be reading a reading or they may be, you know, controlling a process or something, but they're interacting with the physical environment itself. And because of that, um, they, you know, obviously the impact when you're talk, touching the physical environment, the impact of that is higher. And so traditionally it has been, you know, the, the conventional wisdom was, yeah, these things are isolated, so we don't have to worry about them. What we found over the years is that's likely, largely never true, is that largely um, there is some point where these, uh, you know, these operations technology or industrial control networks connect to the IT systems or some for some purpose. A lot of times it's for just for monitoring or telemetry or reporting or billing, but there's some connection that um, does present a vulnerability or there's some, uh, you know, a lot of times when I used to do this work for the Air Force, we find that they were separate networks, but at some point they all went through the sound, sound, same router, but on different interfaces, right? And so there's some point that these do these things do interconnect. And I think over time is that certain critical infrastructures, again, that attack surface is growing because they're becoming more highly connected and the cyber components being added to these environments are you know, proliferating. And so because of that, the attack surface is, is changing, increasing, growing more complex and it's no longer, uh, I don't think anybody anymore rests on or hides behind this is a separate network. They know that there's going to be some interdependencies with the IT cyber systems and they, you know, we, we know we have to protect and address that attack surface. The, this matches very well with Simon uh, when talking about uh, operational resilience and his experience at BP where the safety engineers and the operational networks on the oil platforms. And, you know, if anything goes wrong there, people die, things blow up. And the operations people would would sort of dismiss the IT people and say, you know, though these people are off in their own corner, they don't affect us at all. We don't, you know, we don't pay attention to what they do because they don't affect us. And, and the realization is coming is, A, that yes, IT can affect your systems and B it should no longer be off in their own little corner as the mad wizards. We don't know exactly what they're doing. They should come into operational resilience along with everybody else uh, to understand the risks and mitigate their own risks. Um, so um, y- you say, you know, historically there was uh, a, a 
focusing on operation uh, on critical infrastructure security is about 20 to a little bit more than 20 years old. Um, when um, it was kicked off in the late 90s and the presidential directive number 63 was issued. And that's just basically, look, we got to do something about this. Yeah, I think, you know, many would argue that critical infrastructure protection has been around a long time. I think that uh, as a government, there was a series of things that happened in the 90s, particularly with cyber attacks and uh, nation state, uh, you know, kind of uh, backed kind of stuff that happened to cyber infrastructure that led to, uh, at the time, I believe it was the Clinton administration said, hey, you know, we're going to actually put some presidential directives out there around critical infrastructure protection and around cyber, uh, the, the cyber element and the telecommunications elements of our infrastructure. And, you know, so for example, that was when the concept or the, the construct of the ISAC, the Information Sharing and Analysis Center was launched was with, with P, uh, PDD 63. And so um, that's, that's kind of when a lot of people looked at it to as a starting point where we started to look holistically at critical infrastructure protection as a government. That's when we started to break it up into sectors. That's when we launched the ISAC. And that's also when we started to say, look, we have to worry not only about physical kinetic uh, threats to um, our critical infrastructures, but we also have to look at the cyber and telecommunications aspects. So since then, I mean, obviously a lot has gone on. Where would you say it's evolved into? What is the current state today? You know, I, th I think a lot of folks would say we've really come a long way. But in, in you know, we, for example, I think um, the other thing is after 9-11, um, you know, the Homeland Security Act of 2002 uh, created the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security created the National Protection Directorate and, you know, incarnations of that over the years that has now become uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, so CISA. And so folks would, folks would say we've come a long way as a government. We've also come a long way as an industry. Um, industries that, again, the private sector and industry owns and controls the majority of our critical infrastructures. Um, government may have a policy or a regulatory role in some of them to one degree or another, but it's owned by industry and private sector. And so the industry itself has done more. They've recognized that, hey, cybersecurity threats to our infrastructure, they're a reliability problem for our customers. And so despite what you might say about the, the coolness of cyber attacks, it really comes down to most owners and operators. We want to provide reliable services of energy or water or oil, natural gas, or what have you to our customers. And if there are threats to that, we need to address them. Um, so I, I think it's evolved a lot. I think the state of cybersecurity is, you know, uh, 20 years ago, um, the, the different vendors were having a lot of challenges with just bad, poorly written code in their software. In the industry, we still have vulnerabilities, but we have a lot, uh, we have a lot more hardened systems today than we used to have. So in many ways, you could say it's evolved. In some ways, there are still issues um, in terms of, um, you know, challenges we still have. We still have challenges knowing who's in charge, um, what roles, what's the role of the government, what's the role of industry, um, how, do we, um, how do we actually participate in collaborative or collective defense of our critical infrastructures, knowing that the government might say that they're in charge, but it's really the owner operator that's in charge. So there's lots of challenges with that. There's lots of challenges with sharing information. Uh, and threat intelligence. Um, there's cases where the government has classified intelligence that's hard to share with the private sector. Uh, some cases, the private sector 
particularly the IT and telecommunications sectors have a lot of uh, really highly, highly sensitive intelligence that even the government doesn't have in some cases. So lots of opportunities, but I also think we've, you know, in, in 20, 25 years, uh, we've come a long way, not that we've solved all the problems. If you live in Texas, as I do, we don't need any assistance in bringing down our critical infrastructure. So Texas is its own grid. <laughs> yes, Texas is its own many things, and grid is one of them. You were actually, uh, you were, you've just come off a webinar on securing criti critical infrastructure. What, what was that about? The sessions I wasn't particularly involved in in the conference was, one, focused on just resilience in the energy sector. And the other one was just this topic I mentioned of collaborative or collective defense and how are we doing with collective defense of critical infrastructures. Right. Okay. Yeah. And exactly. So how, how can you work better with the government and uh, with each other? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, and, and I certainly in the last two years, we've seen in just in cybersecurity in general, we've seen much more visible government interaction with the private sector through CISA and other agencies that never used to be there, and which is always really, really great to see that. Uh, two years ago, next month, the solar winds uh, issue, that was a really great example of collaborative defense across, across the government and the private sector. Um, the private sector um, came uh, came to the party with you know all the right intentions and information and tools to help, and so did the government. And um, it was a, it was also very eye opening. We, you know, we had shortly after that we had the big log for J vulnerability that was also an example. Uh, we have examples of that throughout the last twenty years, but we're starting to see more of those. Um, and, and there's some initiatives. I mean, industry uh, vendors like Microsoft and others have been you know championing the cause of collective defense for a number of years. Uh, you know, CISA this year, in fact, launched the joint uh, cyber. Uh, defense initiative, I, uh, JCDC um, uh, at CISA. And so it's really, in, it's really intended to further that cause of how do we collectively defend our critical infrastructures in the event of a cyber attack. Russia has been using Ukraine's own critical infrastructure as a test bed or pilot or guinea pig or, or victim, whatever you want to call it, for many years. Um, Not Petya was five years ago in, I believe, June. And before that, um, for several years before that, Russia had caused uh, blackouts in, in Ukraine. What's your take on what Russia is doing to Ukraine's critical infrastructure right now? And, and uh, I'll ask us more open-ended. Have there been uh, attacks by Russia that you're aware of outside of Ukraine against critical infrastructure that may be related to that? Yeah, no, I think, yeah, and as you said, Russia, not only Ukraine, but all of the, many of the former Soviet Republic test beds for Russian cyber weaponry. Uh, uh, and, and so the Ukraine hasn't enjoyed that solely. It's uh, Estonia and Georgia and others have enjoyed that as well. Um, I think in the case of Ukraine, Russia's, you know, specifically seeking to undermine, you know, their military command and control, their government functioning, their government communications. And they've taken steps to do that, but, you know, they've done it both ways. They've, they've taken those steps via kinetic attacks where they've just, you know, dropped bombs or sent missiles uh, to take out. But they've also, you know, they've also attacked things specifically like satellite networks that they know 
Uh, I think it was last spring, in fact, there was you know, a lot of public reporting about the European, I think it's Viasat network that you know Ukraine and others are dependent upon. And uh, there was a lot of attacks or uh, manipulation of that environment to try to undermine or uh, create an advantage for for the Russian military forces in Ukraine. So I, I think they continue to do that. I think it's a uh, an example of, you know, they, they've actually not been as successful as a lot had expected. And because I think, you know, go back to the topic of collaborative collective defense, a lot of industry has come alongside Ukraine. A good example are the cloud providers like Microsoft said, hey, we realize that your data centers are being destroyed. Um, here, we will give you free use of our cloud in other countries uh, for you to, to put your government services, your military services, your other business services in the midst of this war so that you don't have to worry about Russian bombing your data centers. Or, um, you know, the, the, the popular example of Elon Musk uh, standing up free Starlink uh, for the Ukrainians so that they could do their military command and control and other government communications over uh, an alternate satellite network that the Russians have less ability to impact, uh, not that they aren't trying, um, but that those are examples where, um, you know, putting the two concepts we just talked about is like Russia is trying to undermine critical entry, as most adversaries would now, in nowadays, but then collective defense, collaborative defense coming to the rescue to, to say, hey, here, we have some options for you to, to mitigate the impacts of that. A really good sign. And and I remember reading about, and I don't think it's quite as well known as a Starlink example, but you pointed out that uh, Microsoft flew a team to Ukraine before the war and they m moved much of their critical infrastructure, I assume it was what we just call a lift and shift, up up into Azure um, to help to help protect them. And there's examples of other you know, IT sector vendors that have done the same thing. They've worked um, to mitigate the potential. They, they, you know, everybody kind of saw it coming. And so there was a lot of work that went happened to move uh, Ukraine's infrastructure offshore. Um, and and you, you've seen other examples of this in history. Estonia um, is one of the most digitized countries as a result of what they know, because most of these, you know, former Soviet republics and uh, countries know that most of their internet services and other services have traditionally always flowed through Russia. And so they've always worked to try to mitigate the impacts of that. So developments that, again, as I said, I don't think people are as widely aware of that. I believe it was Estonia that suffered a a very, it was a, I think it was a, a, a DDoS attack that brought down a lot of their government several years ago. That was probably four or five years ago now. So. But yeah, and there's, you know, Georgia has had significant DDoS attacks. Estonia has had that. Estonia has had the power grid attacks as well. So they, like I said, Russia has used all of those, many of those countries as their test environments. Well, thank you, Jerry. I thought that this was a very interesting conversation. I'm, I'm not as well versed in critical infrastructure as I should be. And it's been a very interesting uh, and, and helpful uh, insight into what's going on with critical infrastructure today. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com 
That's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.